Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Episode 616 with my guest, Jessica Eckhoff. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit. All the bullshit between the ears. K-Fuck FM, as my friends call it. Um... The show's not meant to be a substitute. And by the way, little note to self. Show not to meant to be a substitute for professional male counseling. Not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. I can't even get through my to-do list. So honestly, why don't you tune out right now? I like how I use the the verb tune as if this is radio. <laughs> get off the get off the microphone, you old fucking man. All right, forty-six. Second mark, and we are shitting on ourselves. All right. Let's dive into some uh, some surveys. This is uh, from the Ask Paul Anything survey, filled out by Kimmy Kimmy Bobimi. Uh, and she asks, uh, trauma survivors tend to wear their trauma on their face and in the way they carry themselves. What's a good way to deal with those who alienate? alienate, bully, or single us out? That's a really complicated question, uh, Kimmy Kimmy Bobemi. And I think the most important thing when we're dealing with anybody who is potentially uh, a bully or alienating or just any in any way disrespectful is to just be aware of our boundaries and ask ourselves, is, is contact with this person necessary? There's nothing that that we can do, I think, to um, influence other peeping, people being assholes, but we can decide whether or not we're, uh, we're in their near vicinity if possible. You know, one of the things that, that I always am willing to do is uh, to end a phone call or leave a room if I need to. And that makes just, it's so much easier heading out to a social engagement, knowing I'm not stuck anywhere. Children get stuck places, but adults very rarely have no choice 
as to whether or not to leave a situation. All right. I hope that, I hope that helped you, Kimmy Kimmy Bo Bimmy. Uh, and please say hello to Fanta Fanta Bo Fan or whatever the, whatever the fuck that person's name is from that stupid song. Uh, this is from the body shame survey filled out by a woman who, oh my God, you've got to be fucking kidding me. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Anna Banana. Hilarious. Hilarious. And she filled this out like a month ago. Whereas uh, Kimmy filled that out, I think, uh, like in the last in the last week. I think I think there are angels everywhere, huh? What do you like or dislike about your body? She says, not to be cliche, but everything. I can literally pick apart any part of my body and convince myself that it's ugly. I wish I had the same empathy and love I have for others for my own body. The same body that has gotten me through so much, through sexual abuse, through self-harm and addiction. I wish I could give my body all the love it deserves because it's gotten me here. It's gotten me this far. Why can't I be nicer to myself? That one really, really rang a bell with me, uh, Anna Banana. And I don't know, just the way you phrased it really... uh, just reminded me how punishing we are towards this single gift that we have in our lifetime. You know, sometimes I'll imagine my body as a car and say, well, why would I not, you know, if one of the tires is flat, why would I keep putting off getting it fixed or going, having the engine looked at? And the answer is because I'm lazy. No, but I... Having love for your own body is so fucking hard, but it makes so much sense. You think about, I got an electrocardiogram today and a uh, stress test. And so I'm laying on my side and they're doing the uh, EKG and the ultrasound or whatever whatever the fucking names of those things are, but where you can see the image of uh, your heart. And I could see the inside of my heart and... And I was like, wow, you've been with me since before I was born. Just fucking pumping away, just doing your job, and and I take you for granted. Is that weird that I'm speaking to a body part like it's a sentient being? But I, I did. I felt like this overwhelming sense of like gratitude um, and... I don't know, we just we just take the things that our body does for granted. You know, it's, it would be so easy for me to focus and go, oh, body, why do, why do I have the marker for rheumatoid arthritis? Why are my fingers starting to, you know, bend and, and twist and blah, blah, blah. Why can't I eat this? Why can't I eat that? But I don't know, when I think about all the things that my body does do, it's fucking amazing. It's amazing. So thank you for that uh, that survey. Uh, this is also from the uh, Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Good to Be Back. And uh, she writes, I've recently been working on my love addiction. I realized I suffer from this fairly recently, and it's been a massive eye-opener and has explained so, so much. As part of this work on my love addiction, I'm trying to decipher what aspects of my life are due to my addiction and what are separate issues? 
This is all so, so hard to separate out. One area of dysfunction is that I have barely spoken to my mother for many years. I shut her out emotionally. I had my reasons and have been more at peace since that choice. But recently, as I'm doing more work on my love addiction, I fear I have shut her out for the wrong reasons and that maybe I felt I didn't want her in my life because her love wasn't as exciting as the type of love my addiction was seeking out. Maybe even her being around me was hindering my addiction from getting its needs met with other more intense feelings from people. I'm now very confused about whether or not I set the boundaries with her or if my addiction did. Have you got any insight into this issue at all, Paul? How do we go about sifting through these overlap areas? I have a support group and a therapist, but as you've spoken about kind of related topics, I wondered if you had insight on this also. Well, obviously, I I could never know all the the full depth and breadth of your relationship with your mom, but just a couple of sentences that I want to read back to you. I have been more at peace since I shut her out emotionally. That is really important. That is, I think that says a lot. That says a lot. And then you follow it, or or actually, uh, next sentence after that, I fear I have shut her out for the wrong reasons. The fact that you are feeling fear around that um, doesn't mean that you made the wrong decision. It just means you're anxious about that decision. Um, so I'm just reading your, your, your thoughts back to you. And I, I think anybody, or I should say most people, who go through some type of boundary setting with a family member or loved one, there's going to be a period of guilt and questioning and self-doubt. And I think that's totally normal. I think the thing to key in on is how do we feel inside when we're around that person and how do we feel when we're away from that person. And that's my two cents. This is uh, from the love survey. God, do I love when you guys fill out the love surveys. I can, I can never... Is this my new addiction? Am I going to have to start going to a 12-step <laughs> twelve step meeting for love lists? Uh, this is filled out by a person who calls himself poop farticles. Mm. Wish I would have seen that before I decided to read this. No. Whatever name you choose, hey. Whatever, whatever gets us to the love list. I don't care what name you choose. Uh, share things you love. I love when you finally get into your car after a stressful social engagement and let out all the farts you've been holding in. I say, why wait? I love when I do something really weird and goofy. My partner does something even weirder back, and we just continuously keep making each other laugh. That is awesome. I love that. I mean, that to me, if you can have moments like that in a relationship, that is That is awesome. Uh, I love when Paul talks about crazy doing human things like editing the podcast. She is no longer editing uh, the podcast. She's actually now in sales. And I got to tell you, they're through the roof. There's something about her charm that um, clients find irresistible. 
And she's doing it while she's getting her law degree, which I think she actually had a previous law degree, but she ate it. So she's got to go get a second one. I love the days when I appreciate my soft, squishy belly. I love the sweet, syrupy smell of the sun hitting the dry pine needles when I'm walking in the woods. That is such a great one. Oh my God. Such a great one. I love the loud thud that my chubby, fluffy cat makes when she flops on her back for belly rubs. I love mushroom season and seeing all the mycelium showing off their genitalia. Well, look at you, fancy science person. Uh, I love when your laugh is so genuine that it has an embarrassing sound. That's a good one. Uh, I love when you meet someone and can immediately be silly with them because you see each other's souls so quickly and feel at ease around them. Oh, those are those are beautiful. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, you know, it would be nice if uh, our bodies and our brains came with a user manual. Um, I got to say, go into therapy for me and most of the people that I know who go to therapy. Uh, we feel like it is uh, a way to go get a get a tune-up. And it's very important in my life. And those of you that are feeling stuck, um, feeling confused, uh, therapy is a great way to get coping skills um, and, and just learning ab- about the, the engine between your ears. I've been using BetterHelp for, I think, six years now. And I'm a big fan. I like not having to leave the house. My therapist, Heidi, is awesome. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online, plus it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash mental. That's betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what is makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And then finally, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence Survey. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself November Payne. 
and about having a low libido, she writes, Sometimes I prefer to cuddle my dog instead of my partner. I know there's no risk of him expecting anything from me. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Marlon, like we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now. You just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Uh, you're in the right place. I'm here with Jessica Eckhoff, uh, who is a mother, and you experienced postpartum mania with some psychosis. Yes, I did. Uh, how long ago was this? So it all started, my son is almost 20 months old, and it's it started within a couple days of his birth. Does well actually let's let's back up to the to the very beginning. What was family life like growing up? Was there any kind of history of mental illness in your family? Zero history. Um, wow. I know, I know, it, which made everything all the more shocking. Um, I had a really kind of happy home life. I'm an only child. I've always had a good relationship with my parents. Um, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, a 900-person town in central Illinois. Wow. Uh, yeah. What, about, t- what town? Uh, Brimfield. What And what is the city that's close to that? Peoria. Okay. Yeah, it's about twenty minutes outside of Peoria. Okay. So that was that was where we would go for all of our, you know, shopping and, and things. Um, but yeah, I mean I was really into figure skating. I was a competitive figure skater as a kid. So that that was kind of how I spent a lot of my time. I really loved that. Um, but yeah, I had um I've had issues with anxiety, generalized anxiety for a long time. Um before but the pregnancy. Before the pregnancy, yeah. I've had that since high school. But um you know, my I'm sure we'll get into this, but my my exact diagnosis was postpartum onset bipolar disorder with psychosis. And there's zero history of bipolar anywhere mm-hmm. in my family. Um, so that was that was a total shock. How would the anxiety present itself uh, in high school? I had it, it all started. I had a I had a friend who died by suicide. And so it kind of all started with that. I started having a lot of panic attacks um, just, you know, really classic panic attack symptoms. I would be really shaky. My heart would race, sweaty palms, uh, dizziness, nausea. And how soon after your, I'm so sorry to hear about your friend. How, how soon after uh, that happened did, they, did the panic attack start? Pretty soon, probably like within a month or so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, shaky, rapid heartbeat. Um, what, what, what else? Just a, a feeling of dread, of just overwhelming kind of dread and terror, like something really awful was going to happen. The next second. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's so awful. It's it's just the absolute worst. And it's, and it's interesting because you 
can intellectually know it's not going to happen, but your body feels it. Yes, absolutely. You, I mean, you can try to talk yourself out of it, but it's just, it's so hard and it's so all encompassing. It just, it, it completely impairs you. It just, it just kind of makes things impossible. Uh, I cut you off bef- before you uh, oh. started to say something. Um, and so what did you do when it first presented itself? Did you go for help? Did you think, uh, you know, there's something wrong with me personally? I just need to... Well, I mentioned that I grew up in a 900-person town, so you might not be shocked to hear that mental health was not, you know, at the forefront of most people's minds. Um, so initially, when I, you know, I told my parents about these symptoms I was having, they took me to the doctor, and my, you know, small-town general practice doctor was like, oh, it sounds like maybe you have a heart murmur. So they sent me to, like, a cardiologist, and they gave me this heart monitor that I had to wear for a couple days, and I had to keep a diary of, like, when I felt my heart racing and you know they were just checking for heart murmurs um and it's you know it's kind of funny but not funny to me now looking back and thinking like I just had a friend die and my doctor didn't think that maybe I was having panic attacks like the more likely explanation was that I had a heart murmur (laughs) you know it's kind of I like to think that wouldn't happen now I think we've as a society gotten a lot better about Mm -hmm. mental health but we we weren't so great back then was he an older doctor yes okay yeah yeah um, so when was it diagnosed? Um, within, I, I started seeing a therapist, um, and I think he was the one who kind of gave me the diagnosis. So after, I, I think they ruled out the heart murmur relatively quickly. Um, so, you know, within probably six months or so of when I started okay. having panic attacks, I, I got the diagnosis. And what did you remember thinking or feeling when you learned that it was an actual thing? Um, I felt better because I knew that there was a plan. Um, I knew like, oh, there's medicine for this. And, you know, I I was put on medicine and that helped a ton. Um, so I, I mostly just felt grateful that, okay, this is not just something that I'm going to have to live with. It's not this nameless thing. I know what it is. And, you know, I maybe I didn't personally know what to do about it, but I, right. I trusted that the medical professionals in my life would know what to do about it. Yeah. So and then you get married. Mm-hmm. Uh, how old were you when you got married? I was a baby. I was 25, but mm-hmm. we met when I was 20. So we had actually okay. been together for a while at, and at that point. Did you know him from your town? No, I didn't. We went to college together. We oh, were okay. we were summer, summer orientation leaders together. So we gave all the tours and stuff. How wholesome. Yes, very yes. wholesome. <laughs> oh, where'd you go to school? University of Missouri. Okay. Is that Mizzou? Yes. Okay. Go Tigers. Um, so you get married at 25, uh, and how old are you when you get pregnant? How, how old are you now? I'm 36. Okay. Um, so when did you become pregnant? When I was 34. Okay. Um, walk me through uh, when things began to unravel. Yeah, it wasn't until after I gave birth. My pregnancy was very textbook, um, didn't even really have nausea that bad. It was just, you know, a really standard pregnancy. Everything was fine. Um, my husband and I were really excited about it. It was it was very much a wanted pregnancy, and we were looking forward to being parents. Um, I did a ton of research while I was pregnant. Um, I'm 
I'm just a, a research-oriented person. I, I want to feel like I'm prepared for everything. So I, you know, I thought I knew all the potential things that could happen to me postpartum. I read a lot about postpartum depression. I knew about postpartum anxiety. Um, I thought, okay, I, I know what these symptoms are. If this happens to me, I know exactly who I'm going to call. Like I, I can call my wow. therapist. I can call my OB. Um, I had even worked with a reproductive psychiatrist before I got pregnant. What? Because I was nervous. I'm like I said, I'm on a medicine for a generalized anxiety disorder, and I was nervous about being on that medicine while pregnant. So I worked with this reproductive psychiatrist to help help me determine whether I felt comfortable staying on that medicine. And ultimately, I, I was. Um, but I, you know, had her on my, on, on my speed dial. I, I was ready. I knew what I would do. So I, I thought I was just so prepared. And was, um, postpartum mania on your radar? Zero percent on my radar. I never came across the term. Um, I never came across the concept of postpartum bipolar. Um, didn't know that that was a thing. I came across the concept of postpartum psychosis, but very little information about it. All, basically, all I saw was, this is super rare. It's not going to happen to you. Don't worry about it, is essentially the extent of what I saw about it. I mean, I, I don't think I even really read any details about what the symptoms are or, or what to do or what it looks like or anything. So when did you begin to uh, know that, that something was off. Looking back, my symptoms definitely started to kick in around two days postpartum. Um, one of the symptoms of mania is kind of this overcommitment to projects or goals um, and, and kind of like being too fixated on being the helper, but to like an unhealthy extent. And there was um, a nurse educator who came to my recovery room when my son was two days old. And, you know, she was talking to us just about discharge and the first couple weeks of parenthood and just kind of basic things to know about feeding and sleep and stuff like that. And um, I mentioned that I had had a doula and she was like, oh, that's, you know, that's really interesting. Um, I'm really interested in doulas and I've actually considered maybe becoming a doula myself. And I just immediately latched onto this idea and thought, it is my purpose to help this woman become a doula. Like, this is my job now. This is what I need to focus on. So I... So your birth had taken place in a different place than the, than the hospital? No, it was in the hospital. And I was just in the recovery room and the nurse educator came in. So the doula was in the hospital with you? Yes. Oh, okay. I didn't. Yeah. I always assumed that the doula would uh, do a home birth or something else. No, I mean she would have if that's what I wanted, but I, uh, I wanted that sweet, sweet epidural. So yeah, <laughs> hospital yeah. birth for me. So does a doula work with the uh, doctor? Yeah, I mean they were pretty. I I actually was referred to my doula by my OB, um, which I really appreciated. So they kind of you know worked hand in hand, and it's nice because the OB obviously has lots of other patients that they need to attend to, and right. all the hospital staff does. But the doula is just focused on you, so you know whatever yeah. I wanted or needed, she was just kind of there for that. And and is is the primary function of a doula uh, emotional support? Uh, logistics of birthing the baby? It's a lot of things. So actually, I did um, I did a pretty intensive, it was like an eight-week-long course with my doula. My husband and I did it together, and it was like a you know birthing preparation course. It was, I think, two hours a week for eight weeks, and it was all kinds of different stuff. It was like everything from how to advocate for yourself in the hospital if you feel like the doctors aren't listening to you and aren't taking your concerns seriously mm -hmm. to pain management techniques and like different acupressure things that your partner can do, different positions that you can push in, um, 
all kinds of different wow. things all the way down to she brought twinkle lights and she hung up twinkle lights in my delivery room because she said it makes it feel like cozier and not like this sterile, scary hospital. Mm. It makes it like a nicer, warmer environment. So, and did you feel that? Yeah, I did. It, it was really nice. I wow, loved my Wow, that's doula. amazing. Yeah. It's amazing how often the emotional considerations uh, are not considered in medical situations. Yeah. And yet it's such an important part for many of us. It could be the scariest moment of our life or the most important moment of our life. Yeah, that's. I think that's absolutely right. So that, that was one of the reasons that I really loved having a doula there. Okay. So it's uh, two days yeah. Afterwards, your <laughs> your mission is to help this nurse practitioner become a doula. Yep. Did exactly. she say anything? How was her response to your intensity? <laughs> so I I I'm sure she didn't feel like she needed my help in the way that I felt like I needed to help her. So she didn't know a lot of what I did. Um, I went, you know, I I gave her the name and the email address for my doula and said, you know, you should reach out to her. I'm sure she'd be happy to, you know, answer your questions about what the training is like and all that. You know, maybe she can be your mentor even. Um, But then I go home and I've decided, well, it's not enough that I gave her my doula's email address. I need to make sure they actually talk because sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. people don't always help themselves. And maybe I need to make sure that they actually get the conversation started. But I didn't have the nurse. Her name was Angela. So I didn't have Angela's email address. And I was like, okay, how am I going to get her email address? So I called the hospital, you know, asked to speak with her. She wasn't there that day. Um, called over to the education department that she was based in, tried to get her email that way. That didn't work. I ended up reaching out to a couple friends of mine who work at that hospital and asked what their email syntax was so that I could guess what her email was. And then sent this like long email to my doula telling her all about the nurse and saying like, she'd be a really great doula. You should definitely work with her. And at this point, you know, my I did this right when I got home. So my son is three days old. And rather than like, I mean, there's a laundry list of other things that I should have been doing. Sleeping would have been great. Um, But instead, I was just fixated on finding the email address and sending out this email. And were you fixated on your son as well? Or was this kind of uh, robbing your son of the the attention that he he should have had? The latter, which is, I mean, it's awful to think about, but it's true. I, I mean, I... It's not that I wasn't paying my son any attention at all. I was. And with mania, you kind of go in and out of lucidity. So there were times where I was just completely down to earth and normal and I was doing feedings with him and enjoying time with him. But then there were other times where I felt like, oh, I have all these other things that I need to get done. Like this is just kind of, you know, this is cutting into my time that Mm -hmm. I need to be doing all these other projects. Isn't it interesting how mania just shuffles priorities into this random fucking Yes. Yeah, you look you look back and you're like, why the hell did I think that was important? Like, why at three days old was I spending my time, you know, trying to hunt down this woman's email address? Like, that's yeah. it's absurd to me now from like a place of lucidity to think that that's what I felt like I needed to be doing. So what happened next? So um, four days postpartum is when the psychosis started to set in. So my husband um, was trying to sterilize our son. His name is Wells. My son is Wells. My husband is Dane. Um, 
Dane was trying to sterilize Wells' pacifiers, and you're supposed to, you know, put them in boiling water for a couple minutes to sterilize them. So he had done that, but then Wells started crying, or somehow he got distracted and walked away from the stove, and all of a sudden, we hear the smoke detector go off, and the pacifiers are burning on the stove. So, you know, we, like, rush downstairs, Wells and I do, and Dane is, like, turning off the stove and, you know, dumping the the water outside, trying to, like, air out all the, the smoke, And so I go downstairs and like, you know, Dane comes down after me and we're kind of hanging out downstairs for a little bit, waiting for the fumes to dissipate. And a couple hours later, I go upstairs just to kind of see how the air is. And I end up getting sidetracked doing some task. I was making lots of lists. I had like post-it notes all over the house of like lists of things I wanted to remember. So I think I was like making lists. And my husband comes up and is like, hey, you know, Wells is up. Like, I I think he's hungry. It's probably time to feed him. And I went into this rage, which is really uncharacteristic for me. I am not a yeller. I'm definitely not a yeller at my husband. We have a really, really good relationship. I don't think either of us has ever, like, yelled at the other. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just start screaming that, you know, how I was breastfeeding at the time. And so I was screaming, like, how dare you just reduce me to, like, a milk machine? You know, I'm, I'm not just, I'm not a cow. Like, my sole purpose isn't to feed him. Like, how dare you? Like, I'm a lawyer. I'm a really successful lawyer. Like, how dare you? And I'm just screaming. And I start, like, kind of hunting him down the steps, basically. And he's looking at me and he's scared and he's like backing away from me he's like what what why are you yelling like what is going on what does this have have to do with you being a lawyer what have i gotten into yeah exactly so he i mean i think he was just terrified and i i kind this part i sort of blacked out i remember the beginning of the rage i know that it went on for a long time because of what my husband told me afterwards but i don't remember a lot of the middle part i just know that i was screaming the parts that you do remember was there any sense of watching yourself and feeling like this isn't characteristic of me none the opposite I felt really powerful I felt like oh I'm like I'm the woman who's speaking out and like good for me I'm not gonna just let myself be put in a corner I'm gonna speak up for myself and you know how how dare a man tell me what to do um, no, so I, I felt really powerful. Um, and it's at some point, so my husband goes back downstairs, locks himself and my son in the guest room because, um, I mean, he's scared of me. And I just go back upstairs. Eventually, I kind of come out of it. And I have this hazy recollection that like, oh, I think I raised my voice. I think maybe I owe him an apology. But I, I didn't remember the specifics of what I had said. That kind of came back to me later. But in the moment, I didn't really remember what I had done. And my husband said, like, you know, we need to call your parents. Like, we need to get them here right away. And I was like, oh, I I think that's kind of overkill because we had decided previously we wanted to wait a couple weeks for my parents to come. We wanted to just settle into our our new lives and into being parents. And, you know, I think it was like 9 o'clock at night at this point. And I said, like, you know, okay, like, if, if you want, I'll call them tomorrow. And he was like, no, I think you need to call them now. Like, they should really get here as soon as possible. And I thought man, he is, like, really struggling with this new parenthood thing. Like, he's so stressed. Like, I don't know what's going on. My husband is very calm normally. And I just thought, this is really unusual for him. But, you know, if it's going to make him feel better, like, okay, I, you know, I I love my parents. I'm happy to have them calm. I'll just call them and have them calm. Um, And so I did call them. And I think from the way that I was speaking, they told me later that I was speaking really quickly and I was going off on all these tangents. And they could tell I just wasn't being myself so they were worried um you know so they got in the car first thing in the morning and came 
to Chicago. They're in Peoria, you know, about three hours away. And by the time they got here, got there, I had developed this delusion that my husband was trying to call DCFS to have our son taken away because he thought I was this like unfit mother. Um, why I developed that delusion, I have no idea. I just did. And so by the time my parents arrived, you know, they they ring the buzzer and I thought it was DCFS. So I threw myself to the ground, throw a pillow over my face. I'm hiding because I think they're trying to like look in the window and see me. So I'm on the floor just screaming hysterically when my mom walks in and like that's where she finds me. And at that point, my son was four days old. So symptoms set in really fast. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) When... They gave you feedback on how you were acting. Were you able to take any of it in? To an extent, but not fully. So I, you know, my mom was able to kind of settle me down, convince me that Dane was not calling DCFS, um, you know, got me to go to bed and try to sleep for a little bit. So I did. And when I woke up, um, Dane had already been doing research into therapy and he was the first one who used the word psychosis. He said, like, I I think you might be like in a psychotic state like this is just Mm. so extreme. And I was like, oh, I don't you know, I don't know about that. Um, Something does seem to be off. Yes. Um, But, you know, I don't I don't know what it is exactly. And he reached out to a friend of ours who's a social worker and she knew about um, it's very rare. There should be more of these in the country. But there was a perinatal, which is pregnant and postpartum. So a perinatal intensive outpatient therapy group in the suburbs. And our friend knew about this and told Dane about it and said, you know, it sounds like she needs some next level help. Like this is not something that a therapist can address. Like she needs more help than that. Um, So she suggested that I check out this program And Dane had already like looked into it and already called the program and they scheduled me to come in and do an intake interview the next day. And what happened then? Or a couple, maybe it was a couple days later. I don't know. And were you fighting Dane on this stuff? No, I wasn't fighting him. Um, I, I could recognize that something was off and I'm a huge advocate of therapy. I have been ever since I was in high school and had the panic attacks. I had surprisingly, given where I grew up, I had a really good therapist. So, you know, good therapists can be anywhere. Um, And luckily, even though I was in this small place, um, I had a good therapist. So I've had a ton of respect for the profession ever since. And I've I've had other therapists off and on throughout my life. And so um, I was definitely not opposed to the idea of therapy. I thought, you know, the word intensive threw me. I thought, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I need an intensive program, whatever that means. But again, um, I love my husband and he wanted me to do this program. And so I thought, you know, if it's going to make him feel better, there's there's worse things in the world than too much therapy. So, you know, fine. It's amazing, you know, given how difficult the road was, how much good foundation was laid um, for you guys to be able to navigate this. I mean, what a... um, blessing that you believed in therapy and you had a supportive husband who had gone through the you know eight week training before before you gave birth and that you had supportive parents i mean can you imagine if you had not believed in therapy and you had a terrible relationship with your son and your parents were telling you to pray it away yeah i mean no i can't well i can't imagine actually because you know there are plenty of horror stories out there about things that women with postpartum psychosis do i mean there 
there's murders and there's suicides and there's infanticide and there's all kinds of crimes committed and really dangerous things that happen when psychosis goes untreated. And if I didn't have all those supports, that absolutely could have been me. Um, I, I think about that all the time. Like, despite everything that happened, and I mean, so far we were just at the tip of the iceberg, um, but despite everything that happened, I still feel really, really lucky. So you start going to the uh, intensive outpatient? No, I don't make it. I don't make it that oh, far. Things okay. things get worse. Okay. <laughs> um, so there's there's a. I think there might have been a few days maybe in between when Dane contacted the program and when they were able to get me in for an interview, or maybe there were a few days before. So there were a few extra days in there somewhere, during which time there were a bunch of additional symptoms that set in. So um, another symptom with mania is grandiosity, like this inflated sense of self-importance, like, you know, it's up to you to save the world kind of thing. And there were all these examples of that that happened to me. So I um, am a big fan of Bachelor Nation, love The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. And um, at this time, the the Bachelor was airing, and I, you know, watched every episode. And so I had this episode saved that I was going to watch of The Bachelor, and I was like, you know, looking forward to it. And I'm watching this episode, and in it, it's the first Black Bachelor. His name's Matt James. So he was the first Black Bachelor in the franchise history, which was a big deal because the franchise does not have a great history with respect to race. Um, So that was kind of a big deal. And a bunch of his contestants were women of color, too. And so there was this date and it was him and one of his contestants, Serena, who's also a person of color. And they did this tantric yoga date. And she was really uncomfortable and said so. Like she said, you know, this is not my thing. We're basically being put in these like sex poses and we're not at that point in our relationship. She was really uncomfortable. And I just went into this rage and felt like. ABC, the network that airs the show, is basically like perpetuating assault right now. It essentially is like forcing Matt James to assault this contestant. Like, this is terrible. And I immediately start thinking back to my first year in law school. I'm a lawyer. Um, And I was thinking about our torts class and all these different causes of action, you know, assault and negligence and battery and all these things. And I was trying to decide, okay, a tort has definitely been committed here, but what is it? Like, what has ABC done exactly? They've definitely done something. And so I start outlining this letter that I'm going to send to ABC accusing them of assault and making all these threats. In my outline, I threatened them that if they didn't make a big donation to this intensive outpatient therapy program that I was going to be doing, if they didn't make a big donation, I was going to expose them for the abusers that they were just abusing, you know, these people of color when they finally have a black bachelor. Um, so that was one of the things that I did. Fortunately, I I did not send that letter. Didn't get that far. Um, I There was another instance with DoorDash. Um, one of our- hold, hold, hold on for- one second. Yeah. So looking back at that, I mean, how, how much um, of were her protests listened to? Was there a kernel of truth in there or, or, or was this just a completely a figment of your imagination? Because just from what you describe, if she said she was uncomfortable and they kept pressuring her into doing it, I mean, I don't know what the word is for that, but it's certainly not okay. Yeah, I so on the show, they kind of do these interviews where it's like, you know, cut away and, and the person is just speaking directly to camera. And it's never clear like, okay, d- 
did that happen like while the event was taking place or did they film that later? I so see. I think okay, she was, it wasn't while it was happening. No, it wasn't while it was happening. It was you. her talking to the camera. So I think that conversation probably happened afterwards. Um, you know, she did the date. She she did the yoga. Um, you don't see her on camera. I mean, she looks kind of uncomfortable, but she's not like saying that she doesn't want to do it while gotcha. she's doing it. So, you know, in reality, has she actually been assaulted? No, <laughs> but um, you know, in my head, she okay. Had been. I just I just wanted yeah. some some clarification. Yeah. On that, uh, so you don't send this. Um, what what happens next? So another example of this feeling like I need to save the world thing um, was re- with respect to DoorDash, the you know delivery company. Um, one of our friends had ordered dinner for us and was having it sent through DoorDash, and our buzzer was broken. So I decided to call DoorDash and give them my phone number so that the driver could call me when he got there. And I called DoorDash, and it took forever to, like, actually get to a person, you know, how it is. Like, you're just on hold, yes. and you got to go through all the menus and whatever. So I, I finally talked to a person, and I'm already kind of irritated because I've been on hold for five minutes or something. And it takes a while for us to even find the order because it's, you know, it's in my friend's name, not mine, and, like, mm-hmm. what's their address. So it, it took a while. And we finally get to the end of that, and I tell the customer service person that I'm just trying to pass along my phone number. And he's like, oh, I'm really sorry. Our system doesn't give us any way to contact the driver once they've already been dispatched. And I just go into this other rage and I'm saying, how dare DoorDash do this to you? Like you are just trying to do your job and they've given you this shitty system. It doesn't even work. It's not letting you do the most basic tasks. Like they're a tech company and they can't even be bothered to like design a functioning platform. And I bet they've probably hired some fancy lawyer who figured out how to make you an independent contractor so they don't have to give you any benefits and you probably don't even have health insurance and like you're just trying to feed your family and like fuck them. Sorry, but that yeah. that was what I was doing at the time, which was all also super unusual. I'm not a person who cusses and I was doing it a lot at this time. So I'm yelling for like 10 minutes about how like, you know what, they've messed with the wrong person. Like I'm a lawyer. I know all the right people. Like I'm going to do something. I'm, you know, people, people complain about stuff, but they don't actually take any action. Like they've messed with the wrong person. I'm going to do something. So interesting too, (laughs) that you're upset about what this person is experiencing. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's not you're being inconvenienced. Yeah. It, it's it, that might be like the sweetest mania I've yeah. I've ever heard. Yeah, it's, I was psychotic, but I I was a kind psychotic person. Right. And I mean, there was a tiny kernel of truth that yeah, yeah it's really shitty that, that this one there was. person has this job where they're helpless and the customer experience is ranked way low down on yeah. the corporate ladder of how things should be handled it's what can we get away with rather than what is you know the experience we want to give the uh, the user yeah yeah exactly so i was just i was livid i'm i'm screaming and dane comes into the room and is is looking at me and is like what like what are you doing why you know why are you yelling at this why guy? didn't like, you stop. use postmates yeah like stop <laughs> exactly like stop yelling um and i remember saying to him like no no you don't understand like i'm not yelling at him i'm on his side like i'm gonna help him and dane is like please hang up the phone like just hang up the phone i Just, you need to stop yelling. And so finally, I'm like, okay, you know, fine, I'm going to stop yelling. But, oh, and then I was asking him, like, 
is this is this conversation recorded? Like, are you recording me right now? And then I realized, no, you know what? I hope you are recording me. I want them to hear everything that I'm saying. I want them to know how much trouble they're in. I want them to know the pain I'm going to inflict on them. Um, and so I, I finally like end my tirade, but in my head, I'm already brainstorming, you know, what I'm going to do. Um, you know, am I going to contact the attorney general? Like, you know, what, what am I going to do to, to go after DoorDash? So that, that was kind of the second like big example of just way too much overcommitment to causes and, and grandiosity. So then what? Um, so then trying to think of all the other things that happened, there were, kind of some other, a bunch of other examples. I developed a speech impediment. I started stuttering. Um, and I've never had a stutter before, but I was having a lot of trouble getting words out. My thoughts were racing so much that I I was having trouble speaking. Like I almost couldn't complete a sentence because I would just lose focus on the sentence and would be thinking about something else. Um, I'm a big audiobook listener and I was listening to an audiobook at the time and I kept trying to listen and I would listen for like 30 seconds and realize that I didn't know what they had just said and I had to like start over. And I kept doing this like over and over and over again. Um, I, I just had a ton of confusion. Like I was just confused about all kinds of different things. Um, I was having trouble processing information. Like I remember one specific example of this was my husband said um, this was actually the day that we were going to the intake interview And he told me something like, hey, um, we should leave it a quarter after. And I told him, I don't know what you mean by a quarter after. Like that takes so much extra processing for me. First, I have to figure out what hour it is. Then I have to figure out how much time is a quarter. Then I have to subtract it. Like, can you please just tell me exactly what time we need to leave? Wow. So like I, I was having that much like processing trouble. Um, so I mean, it was, it was definitely really bad, um, and what else was going on? I so I, I really wanted to go outside and go for a walk, but I was having like so much jumbled thinking and so much trouble focusing that I was worried that I was going to like wander off course and get lost. So I told my husband, you know, I'm just going to go for a loop like on our street. We live on a street where it's like there's a major intersection on one side and there's a T on the other. So mm-hmm. it's just like this one block strip. And I said, like, I'm just going to walk on this intersection, you know, on this street. But like, look out the window and keep an eye on me because I'm a little worried I'm going to wander away. And mm-hmm. he's like, what? <laughs> like, you're you're worried about getting lost in our neighborhood? Like, what is going on? And I remember him saying, like, you should definitely raise this with the therapist. And I remember thinking like, the therapist doesn't care that I get lost easy. Like they're not going to care about that. Um, But obviously what I was saying was way more extreme than just, oh, my sense of direction isn't great. So then what happened? So um, finally I am, I get to the day where I'm doing the intake interview for the therapy program. And by this point um, I'm, I'm having a lot of paranoid thinking Um, And so now I am scared. We get to do the intake interview and they give me these just, I think, standard medical intake forms, you know, like your name and your medical history and stuff like that. And I am convinced that these forms are trying to trick me. And again, um, I I had a lot of fears about DCFS for whatever reason. I have had zero history with DCFS like ever in my life. So that this was unusual. Um, well, unusual for a lot of reasons, but it, it's not like I have a past trauma related to DCFS. I don't. But it, I was, again, concerned that DCFS was somehow going to get a hold of these intake forms and they were going to use them to prove that I was an unfit mother and they were going to take my son away. 
So I am just locked in on these forms and I am certain that they're trying to trick me. So they ask, I remember um, one question was, do you drink alcohol? Which is like a very standard, you know, medical Mm -hmm. form question. And I was like, well, do they mean have I ever drank alcohol? Do they mean if I drank alcohol today, it's 1.30 in the afternoon? Like, are they are they trying to get me to admit I'm an alcoholic? Like, what does that mean? So I put an I said yes, because I, I have drank alcohol in my life. But then I added an asterisk. And I and I know exactly what I said, by the way, because I took pictures of all these forms because mm-hmm. I thought that, well, what if the hospital tries to change my forms? Like, I need to be wow. able to prove what I wrote. This is my lawyer brain. Um, so I have pictures of all the forms, and I, I know exactly what I said. But I had this asterisk by alcohol, and I wrote, um, I did have a glass of wine last night, but only right after my son had gone to bed, and he was expected to sleep for three hours, and I know you can't breastfeed within two hours, and also I had breast milk in the fridge, and also we have formula, and also my parents and my husband were home, so even if he woke up early, he would still be fed. I was just felt like I needed to prove that I, you know, was not being irresponsible with alcohol. Boy, did that sincere admittance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure it did. Um, that was only one. There, there were like multiple asterisks all over these forms. I'm like writing in the margins of the paper. Oh. I'm writing in this tiny font because I'm running out of space. I'm mad at the hospital because I'm like, why are their forms so unclear? Like, I shouldn't have to include all these disclaimers. Like, I'm stressed anyway. Um, my husband said I took something like two and a half hours to fill out these forms. And it was oh just like God. a couple forms. How fucking exhausting was that for My him? poor husband on t- and my dad. My dad had come too. And on top of it, the water fountain was broken. And when I realized that, I told my dad, like, you need to go out and buy bottled water because these people in the waiting room, what if they can't afford bottled water? They don't have any water either. So, like, you need to go buy them bottled water. Oh, my God. And my dad was like, what? So, you know, and then I go back to my forms um, and I, like, finally come out after finishing the forms and I asked my dad, like, where, where's the water? Did you get it? And he's like, no, I didn't. Like, it's not our responsibility to buy bottled water. And also there's another water fountain down the hall and it works just fine. But, um, I've, you know, I finally get in to speak to the therapist and she's, you know, kind of asking me questions about what my birthing experience was like and what postpartum was like. And I thought like, oh, I, I think I'm answering these questions pretty well. I, felt very nervous about towing the line between I didn't want to sound quote unquote crazy, but I wanted to make it clear that my issues were serious enough that they would admit me into the program because I knew my husband would feel better if I was in the program. So I was trying to like tow that line really carefully. And then I remember seeing the therapist look at my intake forms and kind of like took a while looking at them. And I think right after that, she was like, Yep, we have room for the program. You know, we have yes. room for you in the program. Um, I think it was a Saturday. And your desire to be ad- admitted, was that for yourself or to calm your husband and parents? To calm my husband. I was worried about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So So you get admitted. Yeah. So I get admitted into um, into the program. Like I said, I think it was a Saturday when I did intake and I was supposed to start on Monday. So like pretty immediately. Um, but unfortunately everything falls apart the next day. So I, I don't make it to the program. Not yet. Anyway, um, I start having delusions that my husband is the one who's having a mental health break and it all stems from 
our pediatrician had told us that our son, he was like back to his birth weight. And so they said he can sleep up to four hours in between feedings. That's fine. Um, but previously we had been feeding him every three and my husband said like, you know what, if he's been asleep three hours, like let's just wake him up and feed him just to be on the safe side. And I became convinced that my husband was having this breakdown and wasn't able to listen to the pediatrician's advice. And why are you insisting on waking him up after three hours instead of four? You're going to sleep deprive him. You're going to stunt his growth. He's not going to reach his milestones. Like you're, you're hurting him. And I was just, I was so scared about this. So it's about two in the morning and I call a friend of ours who's a doctor, um, not even a pediatrician, he's an anesthesiologist. And I was like, Lucas, you know, I'm sorry to call you so late, but this is an emergency. You know, Dane wants to wake Wells up after only three hours and I think he needs to sleep for four. Like, what do you think? And our friend is just kind of like, the line is quiet for a minute. And then he's like, are you... Are you asking me whether it's dangerous to let a baby sleep four hours? I think he's just like so confused. And of course, I've woken him up and, you know, he we end up talking for a bit and my husband, you know, feels awful and is is trying to like get me to hang up the phone so our friend can go back to sleep. And I keep just grabbing the phone away and saying like, no, no, I have more questions like I I want to keep talking. And finally, like I get off the phone with him and I I told my husband, like, look, see, you know, he thinks that we should let Wells sleep for four hours. And my husband's like, that's not what he said. Like, he told us that we should talk to our pediatrician if we have Mm -hmm. questions. And at that point, I was just like, oh, my God, my husband has had a breakdown. Like, he isn't capable of functioning anymore. Like, what if I'm in danger? What if Wells is in danger? He's not thinking rationally. So I run into our room and I lock myself in the closet and I call another friend and say, you know, I think Dane is having some kind of crisis and I'm not sure that I'm safe. Like, can you come and get me? And that friend who I called was also a doctor. And I think even if she wasn't, she could have guessed that something was wrong. But because she is a doctor, I think even more so could tell that something was wrong. And she was kind of like, okay, you know, what makes you feel unsafe? Like, did he say something? Did he do something? And she's friends with Dane too. So she knows him just as well as she knows me. And Dane is like, the kindest, gentlest, calmest person in the world. So um, I'm sure she was like extra shocked to be getting this phone call from me at two in the morning. Um, And she she finally gets me to agree like, okay, I'm going to sleep on it. I'm going to give it some time. If I I still feel like we're in danger in the morning, she'll come and get me. So I'm like, okay, that's been resolved. But now what am I going to do about Dane? You know, he's having this breakdown. Um, I don't know if he is capable of rational thought anymore. So I call his dad and just start screaming that your son is breaking down and it's the worst possible time. Like he's supposed to be taking care of me. I don't have the bandwidth to take care of him. Like you need to do something like he's got to get his act together. I need him. And like, I can't deal with this. I need to outsource this to you. Like you deal with this. Like I need you to deal with this, except I'm screaming And I can hear my husband in the hallway and I can hear that he's on the phone and I hear him say mental health crisis and I throw up in the door and I see him on the phone and I'm like, who are you talking to? And based on what he's saying, he doesn't answer me, but based on what he's saying, I can tell he's on the phone with 911. And so I say, you know what, like, 
how dare you? How dare, how dare you call 911 on me? That should be the name of your book. Yeah, how dare how you? Dare you? <laughs> so I was like, how dare you call 911 on me? You're the one who's having a breakdown. I'm going to call 911 on you. So I lock myself in the bathroom. There's a lot of locking myself into places during this. So lock myself in the bathroom and I call 911 and say that I think my husband is having this breakdown and I need them to send help. Um, And they're like, you know, okay, we're going to send somebody. And shortly thereafter, the paramedics arrive and they're, you know, not. Who do they go to? Right. (laughs) Moment Um, of truth. Moment of truth. So, you know, I'm sure they start with my husband because I was locked in the bathroom. Um, But then, you know, they make their way back to me. And I told them, you know, my husband's having this breakdown. I don't know what to do. I just, I, I felt like I had to call 911. And they're like, okay, you know, um, we think we should probably go to the hospital. And I was like, man, it's come to this. Like, he is in such a state, he's got to go to the hospital. Like, okay. So they, I'm wearing like a bathrobe. So they have me put on clothes and get in the ambulance. I learned in retrospect that my husband was in the ambulance with me, but I have no recollection of that. I thought in my head that he was in a different ambulance, and I was talking to the paramedic about how I can't believe this is happening. Like, my husband is usually so stable and calm, and I can't believe that stress is doing this to him. Like, I can't believe, you know, he was my rock, and I can't rely on him anymore. And you're still talking 100 miles an hour? Yeah, for sure. Um And, you know, the paramedic is just trying to, like, keep me calm. So we get to the hospital and they bring me into this room and it has all, like, glass windows and they have me go inside and just sit down on the exam table. And Dane's not with me. It's just me and this, like, a nurse. And she's asking me questions and she's asking me a bunch of questions about me and, like, the birth and postpartum. And I remember thinking, this is so strange. Like, why are they asking about me? Like, Dane's the patient. doesn't really – like, right. I'm not the focus here. Um, and But, I, you know, I'm, I'm playing along and I'm answering the questions. And then I see Dane outside um, and he's wearing his street clothes. Oh, at this point, they also – they have me get into a hospital gown. And I remember asking the nurse, like – okay, I get that maybe you're trying to keep Dane calm and maybe this is some sort of like role play thing where like you want him to think that I'm the patient and that's why you want me to wear this gown. But like this seems overkill to me. I don't see how this is helping him. Do I really need to put this gown on? And everyone was very kind to me. The nurse was like, you know, we really do. We really do need you to wear the gown. So I was like, okay, like I love my husband. If this is what they think he needs, fine, I'll wear the gown. So I put the gown on and I can see him out in the hallway and he's in his street clothes and he's talking to the doctor and I'm like, I have to be in a gown. Why doesn't he have to be in a gown? You know, what is going on here? And I, you know, the nurse goes outside and she's talking to the doctor and to Dane. So I'm left alone in this room and I start thinking like, okay, why am I in here? Maybe it's because they're trying to figure out whether I am a good caretaker to Dane and they're trying to figure out whether they can discharge him to go home with me and whether I'm going to take good care of him. So maybe like they're trying to see how I'm going to respond to all this. So I go to open the door to go talk to them and it's locked. So I'm locked in this glass room and I'm like, oh, and I didn't panic immediately. I thought this must be like an escape room. There must be clues. I really love escape rooms. So I decided this must be an escape room. 
that's the only explanation for what's happening. So I'm like on my hands and knees trying to look underneath the exam table to see like, are there clues? You know, there's almost nothing in the room. There's like a little table and two chairs and the exam table. Cotton and that's balls. It. Cotton balls. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I'm like, surely there's clues around here. So I'm like looking for the clues. Couldn't find anything. In an escape room, usually if you get stuck, you know, there's somebody watching you and you can just say like, hey, I'm stuck. I need a clue. And usually they'll get, you know, they'll give you a certain number of clues. So I'm like, all right, well, I'm stuck. I need a clue. So I, I look up at the ceiling and I'm like, all right, well, I don't see the camera. I don't know where it is, but it must be up there somewhere. So I just start yelling, you know, in each of the corners of the room, like, hey, I need a clue. I need a clue. And I'm like waiting for something to happen. And nothing happens, of course. So I'm like, well, maybe they've unlocked the door at least. So I try the door again. It's still locked. I'm like throwing myself against the door in case it's jammed. Um, And I can still, you know, I can see Dane and the doctor and the nurse and they're just looking at me. And um, I, I think at that point they kind of all come into the room and Dane sits down on the bed with me and the doctor looks at us both and he says, you know, I want to hear from both of you why you think you're here. And so he looks at Dane first and Dane explained like, I think my wife is experiencing psychosis and, you know, gave examples of all these things that had happened and all these things I had said and done. The doctor was like, okay. And then he looked at me and said, you know, why do you think we're here? And I said, I think my husband's having a mental health breakdown. You know, he's not listening to the pediatrician and he's putting our son in danger. And I had to call 911. Um, And the doctor just kind of nods and he looks at me and very kindly and really slowly, at least in my mind, it sounded, everybody sounded like they were speaking slowly to me. Um, He said, you know, we're actually here because of you. And I was just shocked. I was I had zero inkling that I was the reason we were at that hospital. I was 100% sure that it was my husband. Like, there was not a doubt in my mind, even with the nurse asking me all the questions and even Mm -hmm. with the hospital gown. I just, I knew that I was not the one who was having a breakdown. And I was just so, so shocked. Um, But I... I have faith in medical professionals, and so I I believed him, but I was just shocked. So they um, they had me sign some forms. I ended up committing myself voluntarily um, because you know they they told me that I needed to stay in the hospital, and they were able to convince me that that was the case. So that's quite an achievement. Yeah, to convince somebody when they're in the grips of mania and psychosis. Yeah, I mean, I think the doctor was probably a really good doctor. Um, One good thing about my story is that all throughout it, I feel like I received really good care. It uh, really sounds like it, man. It it, it's. uh, I wish it was the norm rather than the exception. Yeah, I think I I was definitely the exception. I think. So how did things begin to get better? So I was admitted into the psychiatric ward at the hospital, um, and I was there for six days. And during that time, um, I was definitely really manic still. I was having, I continued to have delusions about escape rooms. Um, When I first got up to the floor, where I was going to be staying, I, th- I think it was like afternoon quiet time. So everybody was in their rooms and they were all laying down. And I remember walking down the hallway and just seeing everybody like laying in their beds in the middle of the day. And I remember thinking like, why is everyone like sleeping in the middle of the day? And then I thought like, 
oh, this must be some kind of like specialized therapy program just for me. These people are actors and they're going to like wake up and start interacting with me when it's their turn. But right now it's like not their turn. And so they're just resting. But, you know, that that must be what this is. And I um, I've done improv comedy for many years. So I was also convinced that there was an improv comedy aspect to this therapy program why and not? I why thought, not why not um so i i thought that i needed to be like initiating improv scenes with people so i was doing that for a while and like getting frustrated that they weren't responding to me and like making a scene with me and like playing um i, I found that really frustrating um psych wards are a terrible place for a yes and terrible place <laughs> So while while I'm there, my very first day, um, I know we'll we'll talk about my my book later, which is called Super Sad Unicorn. And the reason I called it that is because my first day in the psych ward, I was talking to this guy in the day room and he asked me what I did for a living. And I said, I'm a lawyer. And he's like, oh, like you're fancy. We never get fancy people in here. You're like a unicorn. And I was like, yeah, I'm like a super sad unicorn who's locked up in a psych ward and I've got a 10 day old baby at home, you know. So that that was where um that was where I got the name for the book, which is tangent, but it made me think of it. Um, lots of other stuff happened. Like there's a TV in the day room, and I think that it's sending coded messages. There's newspapers in the day room, and I think there's coded messages in there too. Um, I try to set up my own little legal clinic in the day room. Where... <laughs> Again, I'm a, I'm a kind-hearted, psychotic person. Oh, my God. Wow. So, (laughs) I know you have to laugh at it now. It wasn't funny at the time. Yeah. But there were these, um, they put these brown paper bags in our rooms that were meant to be trash cans. And I just kept shredding mine up and making contracts, quote unquote, contracts out of them. We had crayons too. So I was like, I, you know, insert blank, hire Jessica Eckhoff to be my attorney until fill in the blank date and then sign and I just made a bunch of these contracts with my like paper bag and my crayons and I brought them into the day room with me and was like all right you know I'm I'm hosting office hours whoever has a legal problem bear in mind I'm a trademark and advertising lawyer like to the extent that anyone in this psych ward had a legal problem I'm probably the least qualified person to deal with it whatever it is um but I I did that anyway um they kept replacing my paper bag, which in retrospect is surprising. I don't know why, because they could see what I was doing with it. Um, but lots of lots of other things happen. I, I won't go into all the details, but eventually they convinced me to start taking medicine, you know, mm-hmm. an antipsychotic. Um, and I, I kind of start getting a little bit more lucid. Um, I was in the hospital for a total of six days. By the time I was discharged, I was still pretty manic. Um, I thought there was actually going to be, I thought that all of my friends and family members were going to be there to welcome mm-hmm. me when I discharged like a party, like a graduation right. party. And I was expecting, you know, signs and balloons mm-hmm. and all these things. And when I did get discharged and it was just my husband and son and father-in-law in the lobby, I remember being like so surprised that there wasn't more fanfare. But um, I did get discharged and, you know, they sent me home and I had all these medicines and I think I got discharged on a Sunday and I finally started the intensive outpatient program the next day. And um, when did the medicine start to help you? Did it start to help you? It did start to help. Yeah. Um, I would say it, it took a little time, but I think I kind of got a little bit better every day. 
Um, I was still at least hypomanic for probably at least one to two weeks when I got home. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I was initially in the program, I was definitely still hypomanic. I was like offering all this unsolicited advice. And I was really fixated on the idea of writing an op-ed in the New York Times about what had (laughs) happened to me. I have a. F- <laughs> I, th- I still think it's a good idea. I mean, why not? Um, I have a friend who's a writer who actually knew someone at the Times and put me in touch. And I emailed this person and I cringe so much now because I look back at that email and I just sound completely deranged. Right. Um, it's like rambling sentences and it's just, I mean, it's basically incoherent. Right. Um, so unsurprisingly, the New York Times turned me down. So you will you will not find a column from but me. But today, there. I think it would be a good idea. Maybe, yeah, may, maybe I should try again. But I am loath to email that person again. I think, I think <laughs> your story is so important, though. You know, I, I I would love to see it printed where there are excerpts from your original email and you reflecting. Yeah, on maybe it today. You know, to show the power of of mental health care and. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's such an important story. Yeah, thank you. But um, yeah, so that you know that was the first couple of weeks home. Um, I started the program, and you know within a couple of weeks, I'm I'm kind of back to baseline. But I've been diagnosed with bipolar at this point, and I'm really struggling to accept it. Um, I I had just never heard of anybody getting bipolar as the result of having a baby, and I learned that in some people. It's just the perfect storm of your hormones and the stress of being a new parent and not sleeping enough, especially in my case, I was really not sleeping enough because I had all these projects Mm -hmm. that I was trying to do. So I was like not napping when my son napped. So it was just a perfect storm that basically just activates a switch. And if you already had a tendency towards bipolar, that can just activate it. Um, And that's what happened to me. So even though bipolar does have a genetic component and nobody in my family has it, um, it's not always genetic. And so I was just kind of one of the people where there was no, there were no red flags that this would happen to me. And like I said, in all the research I did, I didn't know that it was a possibility, but. Is there a moment that you can share when your husband or your family got the you back that they, that they knew and they felt a sense of they could breathe? You know, I think the answer is no, because even when I was in this manic stage, I was I still had moments of lucidity. Like I remember having, you know, conversations with my husband where we're like bantering and we're having fun. Like he and I love doing the crossword together. And I remember there was a day where like my son was feeding and we were just sitting in the nursery together and we were doing, you know, he was Mm -hmm. reading me the clues and we were doing the crossword like totally normal. And I think like. He would have thought that was totally normal. But then, you know, an hour later, I was doing all these crazy things. So I feel like they they kept getting glimpses of normal me. And maybe they would take a deep breath and think it was over. But then something else would happen. Would the glimpses of the old you become more and more frequent? I imagine they had to, right? Yeah. So this was I'm talking about before I even went to the hospital when oh, I was still like fully okay. manic. Like they were getting glimpses of the real I me. See in between all the manic things that were happening. But I would say when I got home, um, probably within like two weeks or so, I can't I can't think of like any one specific 
moment that I can point to. But I think if you asked my husband, I think he would say that he wasn't seeing any more symptoms of hypomania like within a couple of weeks. And where do you feel like you're at today? Now I'm completely back to my baseline. So I was in this outpatient program for quite a while. I was in it for about three, three and a half months. Um, I discharged and then I had a really depressed phase and I went back into the program for another three or four weeks. And then um, one of the benefits of being in that program is that you get to meet with a psychiatrist twice a week and it's a perinatal psychiatrist. So it's somebody who is specialized in working with postpartum and pregnant women, which is a huge gift because A, there's not a lot of those specialized psychiatrists and yeah. B, even if you did have access to one, it would probably be like months in between mm -hmm. appointments. But for me, she was able to make a lot of changes to my medicine in a short period of time because of how often I could meet with her. So by the time I discharged, um, I was about six months out, six months postpartum, five to six months postpartum. And at that point, I, you know, we had figured out the right medicines and I had a therapist and I was, I was back to my baseline. So I've, I've been kind of back to my normal self for the past year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And uh, when did the the uh, you finish the book? It comes out in 2023? Yeah, it does. So it'll come out um, early next year. I started writing the book um, pretty much as soon as I discharged from the program. So I was about six months postpartum. And it kind of started as a journaling exercise. Like I was just trying to process all of these things that had happened to me and trying to wrap my head around like, wow, it's, it's so interesting that my brain could do this. Like, how did this happen? So I, I was just kind of writing about my experiences. And after doing that for a while, I thought, you know, I have a really unusual story. Like I, when I came home from the psychiatric ward, um, I tried to find examples of other people who had had postpartum mania or postpartum psychosis. I wanted to read first person accounts and I had a lot of trouble finding anything. Um, there, I mean, there was there was basically nothing as far as I could tell, or if there was, I couldn't find it. Um, so I thought, you know, maybe this is a story worth sharing because while this is really rare, I'm not the only person this has ever happened to. Right. It's going to happen to other people. You know, maybe I can be that story that somebody can read and just know that they're not alone because the worst feeling that I had when I came home was just... I'm a freak of nature. I've never heard of this. I'm never going to meet anyone else that this has happened to. No one will ever fully understand what I've gone through. And I'm just going to be alone with this forever. What did you, what benefits did you find from journaling aside from it leading to the project of putting a book out? It, it helped me kind of see how far I had come, like writing down all the things that I had done while I was in this altered state and thinking about, you know, what would I do now? Like as, as I was sitting there writing and I was fully lucid, it helped me see like, okay, that wasn't me. That was an illness. Like I'm, I'm okay now. Like I have these medicines. I have my therapist, like I'm back to my normal self. Like that wasn't me. That was like an aberration. And I think that was really helpful. And how many of the people from the uh, psych ward are now your clients? <laughs> Unfortunately, that did not prove to be a useful business development endeavor. <laughs> they just have not found anything to trademark. That's so right. I do not give up hope. I, I, I can't wait. <laughs> uh, anything else that you would like to share before we, uh, we wrap up? Yeah, um, I want to give a shout out to Postpartum Support International, which is a really fantastic nonprofit that was 
a huge help to me and a big part of my recovery. Um, they have a ton of free programming. Um, two of the the biggest resources, I think, they have a lot of really specialized online support groups, mm-hmm. and they're all free. Um, and they happen. Um, I mean, at least one support group is happening every single day. Um, but there's a bunch of specialized ones. So there's actually one specifically for bipolar now. It mm-hmm. didn't exist when I was first diagnosed, but it exists now. I'm one of the peer support group leaders. Um, attending those sessions was hugely helpful. I know that I you bet. were also a, oh, an advocate of support yes. groups. Um, I think they're the best. The so. best. The best. The sense of community and a good support group. There's yes. some that I <laughs> would not return to again. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's humans are complicated. And sometimes, uh, you know, we need to keep looking to, to find our people. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but I went to these support groups and I thought they were fantastic. They, I mean, they have one for parents whose babies were in the NICU, one for postpartum OCD, one for um, pregnancy loss. I mean, all these, there's like 20 different specialized groups, which Mm -hmm. I think is incredible. Um, They also have a peer mentor program that I did where they paired me with someone who also had bipolar and had had mania after her pregnancies. And she was just like a great example of somebody who was recovered and living a really full meaningful mm-hmm. life even with bipolar she was kind of the first person i saw as an example of that and somebody who gave me hope that i could also be a person living a full and satisfying life with bipolar so um i'm super grateful for that program they have a bunch of other resources too but anybody who's listening to this episode if you are pregnant or postpartum or you know someone who is and they're having a hard time uh postpartum support international Jessica, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, many thanks to Jessica. We forgot to mention the name of her book, which is, uh, and it'll be out in 2023. It's called Super Sad Unicorn, A Memoir of Mania. So uh, be sure to pick that up. Um, I did a little kind of music piece with some voiceover about fall, the melancholy of fall, a couple of weeks ago, and I decided to do a post of it on Instagram. So those of you, if you care to hear that again um, and share it with your friends on social media, might help bring some some new listeners to the podcast. That would be awesome. Uh, my Instagram handle is mentalpod, M-E-N-T-A-L-P-O-D. <laughs> That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Let's dive into some surveys. Or do you pronounce them soyves? Might have been the dumbest thing I've ever said. 
This is from the Shame and Secrets survey, and this is filled out by uh, a guy who identifies as gay. Uh, he calls himself Sexy Techno Boy. Aren't all Techno Boys sexy? Uh, he's in his 30, 30s. He says that he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I reported it. I was abused for several years by two different boys. One was a neighbor and the other was a boy in scouts. Basically, for six years, I was being molested and raped every day, multiple times a day. Oh my God, that is so fucking awful. Pretty fucked up. I never realized what was happening to me until three years into it when I had maturation class. I thought it was a normal thing. After years of therapy to unwire my manipulated brain, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad that you mentioned that that is one of the ripples left in the wake of sexual trauma is the brain that has been gaslit and has difficulty trusting its own sense of what's, you know, what's right, what's a lie, what's the truth. Um, after years of therapy to unwire my manipulated brain, I began the healing process. I feel like my past is a strength, but only because therapy has allowed me to turn all that fucked up sexual abuse into dot, 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 well, fucked up, happy adult me. It's hard sometimes, but I always try to remember that I got therapeutic help early, so I'm far better off than I could have been. All the same, I'm still looking at that little boy, me, who lost his innocence, and when I find him, I will love him and tell him it's all going to be okay. But mostly, I will tell him the adult you got his, the adult you got his revenge. Uh, he's been emotionally abused. Um, I grew up in a devout Mormon home. Well, enough said. Uh, I came out when I was 16, which I'm sure was greeted with open arms, uh, combined with my abuse caused a whole cesspool of festering self-doubt and concern that I was innately unloved by the power that created me. The emotional abuse I endured uh, was of a religious self-loathing type. Quite fucked, if I dare say. Uh, no positive experiences with the abusers. Darkest thoughts. I'm terrified I'm going to self-destruct at a time when I will fuck my whole life up. Darkest secrets. Oh, God. I overslept. I slept overnight in a barracks and fucked a sergeant. But isn't that everybody's bucket list? In the morning, they did room checks, and I had to climb out the window and hide in the bushes. That's, that sounds like a modern episode of Gomer Pyle. Uh, let's see. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to relieve, uh, relive. Paul, slow the fuck down. <laughs> Get better glasses. I want to relive my teens and fuck all the hot guys I knew. Uh, sharing this makes me horny. Shit. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I love you. I've only been in love a few times, and those guys will never know because they are straight, and I'm terrified to be vulnerable when a negative response is likely to happen. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish society valued love and kindness. I think portions of society really do, and I think so much of 
a quote unquote successful life, if you look beyond the you know material part, is finding people that value love and kindness. And when you find them, um, it's pretty fucking awesome. And you know what's also awesome is feeling like you are one of those people that values love and kindness and that other people feel safe around. Uh, have you shared these things with others? I'm a pretty open person. I'm so open. I'm not sure I really have many secrets. I mean, some people know more about me than others, but because of therapy, I have this tendency to vomit my feelings all over anyone who will listen. I think this is a good thing, although I've been called an oversharer on many occasions. I wonder if that is something that is common with, with um, childhood sexual abuse victims, because when I started to process the shit that happened to me, Oh my God, I would tell you about it behind you in line for soup. When I, when I look back at just how desperate I was to have my pain validated, I can have compassion for myself, but mostly it's a deep, cringy self-loathing. Um, so I would say be kind to yourself. Be kind to that little kid that's in there that's just like, I can come out, it's safe, Really? How do you feel after writing these things down? It makes me want to write a book. My life is nothing other than a series of ironic challenges that have shaped me into dot, 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 kind of a badass. Uh, Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? My life. I want to share my life with someone. Well, a man. I'm gay. So, yeah. You are awesome, dude. Thank you for that. That, uh... I think that that is such a great example of we can live with joy and purpose and uh, an abundant amount of mental and emotional health, even if we were raised in a train wreck. It just uh, takes takes fucking work. This is a happy moment filled out by a non-binary person who calls themselves, just put anything, <laughs> stop thinking so much. And they write, I was about 18 years old. I spontaneously went out with my two friends that I was in a band with on a bar crawl. I live in Canada, and that's the drinking age. The three of us were weird alternative punk types, and the people we went along with were very normal teenagers. So we were definitely, we definitely stuck out, but the spontaneity of the evening made us not care. At one point, we were on the school bus going to the next bar, and I want to be sedated by the Ramones came on. All three of us crammed into our bus seat, started singing along at the top of our lungs and headbanging. It was one of those moments that I knew as it was happening just how special it was. It's remained to this day the best moment of my life. Just three misfit teens singing a punk song on a chaotic bar crawl, bar crawl school bus on a Friday night. I've never felt so connected to other people and happy as I did in that moment. I love that. I love that. Again, happy moments for me are like, especially the the kind of sublime ones, you know, like the ones where, you know, I got married to the person I love and we had a beautiful baby. Yeah, fuck off. (laughs) You know what I mean. I like the sublime ones. I like the ones that for some reason... It's just, it all comes together and it takes you by surprise. Those are the ones I like. This is a shame and secret survey and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself the limp. She identifies as gay. She's in her 40s. She says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, Mr. Monday 
and Mr. Monday is in quotes, the neighborhood pervert molested most of the kids around. He would toss quarters off his balcony to get us kids to come, uh, to come up and sit in his lap while he masturbated and had us kiss his genitals. I can only speak to my experience, but I'm sure he tried and did try uh, to anally molest us. Uh, she has been physically abused and emotionally abused. My mother was physically and emotionally abusive, and when she wasn't pounding uh, on me, closed fist, she would degrade me by saying I was stupid, ugly, if abortion were legal at the time, I wouldn't be such a pain in her ass and just another one of her, uh, quote, sons, unquote. In parentheses, she writes, I'm a butch lesbian because I wouldn't be here to have ruined her life. Wow. Wow. That is a lot. Fuck. Between that balcony guy and your mom and being born into a largely uh, homophobic society. Wow. Uh, any positive experiences with abusers? Not really, but she is my mother and I still love her. In parentheses, I fantasized. Aren't I supposed to? <laughs> uh, darkest thoughts. I fantasized about striking back, dragging her around the house by her hair, pulling patches out like she did to me and leaving her to choke on her blood throwing her out into public with a sign around her neck, uh, telling all that she wets the bed just like she did to me in front of a birthday party with over 10 kids I went to school with. Wow. Wow, what a sadist your mom was. Fuck. Darkest Secrets. I burned Mr. Monday's house down. No one knows what he did to me. I never reported to anyone about my knowledge of his molesting me or any of the neighbor kids. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I fantasize of coming home to a clean, beautiful mansion, being led to a huge bedroom with many beautiful women who massage, touch me all over, and cater to my ever-loving sexual want and need. Sharing it makes me feel silly. I love when people, because uh, normally people are like, you know, oh, you know, they list what their sexual fantasy is and they're like, sharing that makes my skin crawl. Sharing that makes me so disgusted with myself. And I love reading one where somebody says, sharing that makes me feel silly. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd love to have had the chance to tell my stepfather how badly he fucked me up and how badly he kicked the shit out of my self-esteem by being the misogynistic ass he was, telling me that girls couldn't do anything that boys could do and laughing at me when I shared with him about wanting so badly to become an astronaut. Back then, the NASA program wasn't allowing women to train to become astronauts, so I gave up on the idea of trying to become anything like that. I assumed he was right because women weren't allowed to train back then. I wish he were still here for me to laugh back at him when I became a great paramedic. He gave me crap about that too, telling me I was just stupid to think about becoming a firefighter slash paramedic. I never became a firefighter, but I was a damn good paramedic and saved many lives during the 92 LA riots just two weeks into the job. Wow. If you are still in LA contact me because I would love to have you as a guest. 
Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I had never become an alcoholic slash drug addict. I wish I'd gotten sober sooner and had been more present in my daughter's life. Have you shared these things with others? No, because I'm ashamed of how I fucked my life up. How do you feel after writing these things down? Ashamed. Uh, man, I think anybody listening to me read this survey is thinking, what a fucking badass. I want to be friends with her. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Never blame themselves if uh, they were a young female. Never let anyone tell you you cannot do something and to never give up on a dream. Thank you for that. Really got a lot out of that. That would have been rude if I'd said, thank you for that. I didn't get much out of that. I tried. I tried. But that was just one dry rock of a survey. Thank you for trying. This is from the Love Survey filled out by Tired Engineer. And they write, uh, Hi, Paul. These are all loves I've experienced in the past week. I love cooking with and maintaining my cast iron skillet. Fuck yeah. I got two that I'm cooking with and maintaining. And it is not easy getting them to that place where it's completely black and shiny on the bottom. But man, is that cool when you get there. Uh, It was my parents, but they stopped using it a while ago and it got pretty gross. I took the time to wash and scrub it and re-season it. And now it's beautiful and shiny and so fun to cook with. I love waking up in the middle of the night thinking it's time to get up and realizing I have hours and hours left to sleep. I love when my dog recovers from being sick and is spunky and playful again. Oh, that's a great one. I love finding a new lipstick that I can become obsessed with. I love playing with my partner's hair and ears before bed. He gets this really sleepy, happy look on his face and just melts into sleep. I love that my hard work has paid off and I passed my professional engineering licensing exam last week. Kudos. I love when I sign onto my computer for work and I have no new emails. That that is a great one. I love when I sign into some website and I don't have to put my password in because my computer remembered it. Uh, I love listening to music. I used to associate with being sad and now associate it with being thankful for the growth and change I've seen in my life since then. I love when my reactive dog sees a person or dog she really loves and how excited she is to go say hi. And I love how cute I look with glasses now that I finally need to wear them. Those are awesome. Thank you for those. Uh, This is another shame and secret survey. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Cursed. She identifies as pansexual. She's in her 20s. She says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. She writes, I believe, I was sexually abused as a very young child, which resulted in severe hypersexual inclinations from a young age. I have almost no memory of it. All I can remember is feeling sexually perverse and even evil from the time I was born. I developed a porn addiction when I was 10 and masturbated constantly after about age 7. I can only assume that my father sexually abused me or even just showed me graphic things since he abused me in every other way. 
After those experiences, I was manipulated and raped by a high school boyfriend many times and tried to report it but didn't have proof. I never realized it was rape until a therapist called it to my attention by simply repeating what I had told her had happened to me. Aside from that, there have been a few instances of being forced or persuaded into sexual acts by males in my life from a young age into high school. She's been physically abused and emotionally abused. My father was very physically violent and would hit, beat, punch, or slap me and my siblings. There were many times I was chased through the house, beaten with belts or wooden spoons, locked in rooms, or had things thrown at me. My father was also very emotionally manipulative. If I was ever cold towards him after a violent outburst, he would give me gifts and guilt me into forgiving him, saying I was a bad daughter or didn't love him. He often cried and broke down, expecting me to hold and comfort him. Wow. He would sob and say he was sorry and cling to my body without letting go of me. Wow, what a mindfuck that must have been. Oh my God. You know, and I wish kids could know to say the phrase, but they're too young to know it. But in that moment, to say, if you're really sorry, go get some fucking help, or I'm going to call child services. Uh, I was often made to feel guilty or responsible for the problems within my family. My mother would ignore my cries for help and told me I was lying about the abuse. Any positive experiences with abusers? There's always the tug of being expected to forgive or love my father simply because he is my father. I have some positive memories of him when he was in a good mental place. He sang and played guitar and would play games with me. I barely talk to him now, only over the internet, and he is completely in denial about everything that happened. Yeah, probably good not to have any in-person contact with somebody like that. Fuck. That's always a good, um, I think, a good step down. If you're not ready to cut contact with somebody, keep it to, um, or at least it worked for me, was to bring it down to just letters or emails, especially if the person is the kind of person that will just launch into, you know, a half-hour monologue about something. You know, if they have to write it out, (laughs) they'll start editing. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I often think about mutilating my sexual body parts, which has been a recurring obsessive thought since childhood. I have suicidal impulses at times, which have gotten better. My most common obsessive suicidal thoughts often involve me bashing my head into a metal spike repeatedly. I sometimes get turned on by rape, bondage, and even pedophilism. My darkest thoughts often revolve around sexual things. Darkest Secrets. Uh, My darkest secret is the incest within my family. I sexually abused all of my younger siblings in some way or another with varying severity. I was a child at the time and everything stopped by the time I was 12, but I still have vivid memories of everything, which occasionally escape the heavy suppression in my head and they torment me. I always believed I was disgusting and deserved to burn in hell for this. In parentheses, my parents were very religious. My my family has been through some counseling since, and my parents separated many years ago. I played a big role in getting my father removed from the house. Oh, good for you. Um, I worked hard to stop the abusive behavior I had started emulating, which I learned from him. However, I can't help but feel... 
that I am an imposter within my own family and the root of evil in my family, so to speak. I try to guide my younger siblings and help them, and I try to make sure they never let anyone hurt them. However, I've done the most damage to them, and we've never spoken about it. I don't know how they see it or even if they remember it. I also have a lot of physical issues that I feel are a manifestation of my shame. And then parentheses, chronic pain, uh, comma, STD. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I imagine writing all that stuff down was really fucking hard. Um, and I just want to reiterate what you said is you were a child at the top at the time and everything stopped by the time you were 12. You sound like a good soul who has been through a fuck of a lot. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I don't have many sexual fantasies, if any. I spend most of my time trying to avoid unhealthy sexual thoughts and sensations. I would like sex to feel enjoyable rather than a sin or punishment. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my siblings that I was twisted and deprived of my person of my personhood and acted in ways I could never imagine now. I would beg forgiveness and let them know that they don't owe anyone, least of all me, their forgiveness. I would tell them to fiercely stand up for themselves and always speak up for their needs. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to heal myself and for my family to heal. I want to be happy and healthy and to figure out what that looks like for me. I've already made it much further in life than I thought I would. Have you shared these things with others? I have shared this with two therapists years apart. I was understood and assured that I was a child and I am not solely responsible for all the bad things in my family. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel scared, apprehensive, but more solid in my reality. Anything you'd like to share with somebody who shares your thoughts or experiences? Things change. There's no way that they can ever stay the same. Sometimes they'll get worse, sometimes better. But as long as you keep trying, they will change. Thank you so much for that for that survey, man. You went you went deep, and I'm so glad that uh, that you're doing that you're doing therapy. Because uh, fuck, you went through a lot as a kid. And then. Uh, Maybe I'll see if I can find some music to, to pair with this. Um, this is from the Love Survey. And this is filled out by a person who calls themselves, uh, I guess it's a woman, and she calls herself Wrong Kind of Love. And she writes, I am a barmaid. I was a student of philosophy and good at it. I'm very creative and intelligent, but my depression and severe emotional damage brought everything to a crunching halt in my mid-20s. I'd already been struggling for a decade by then. I've been working as a bartender for about eight years now. I have severe shame about the fact that I have so far not managed to get back into education, that I have failed my degree. People can't see how smart you are, only what you're working as. I know this is shallow, but I guess everyone derives some self-worth from external things like a meaningful occupation. Mixed with this shame, though, is the pride I experience at work often. It gets super busy at my place, and I work alone on weeknights. I make a point of doing table service as much as I can. 
I thrive when it's busy, and I do an excellent job. I have people come tell me my cocktails taste the best. Compliment me on being so attentive and funny. People come and book their birthday parties at ours when they've seen me work a busy night alone because I do it so well. People regularly come to the front uh, at the end of a night and ask me where the second person on staff was, as clearly this would have been too much for one person. The bar regularly gets completely disassembled. Every single item of glassware and things in use, all the service is dirty, and I love putting it all back together super neatly at the end of the shift. You cannot tell it was a busy night when I'm done. I know I am recompensating some of my intellectual underachievement with prowess at my meaningless job, but probably because I am so starved for recognition, these nuggets of it always feel like a drop of water falling onto a hot stone, beautifully bristling and making a loud, soothing hiss when I tidy up at the end of a shift. I always listen to the mental illness happy hour. That's not the only time in my life I do, but always at the end of my shift. And that's also something that I love. Thanks for everything, Paul. Lastly, when I come home after a 12-hour shift and all my bones ache, and I'm afraid I'll be too old to do this too much longer, there are my dogs. Two black diamond Scottish terriers peacefully sleeping in their wee beds by my big bed allowing me to nuzzle their long beards and kiss their softest, flat heads between their lovingly declined ears. I whisper to them how much I love them and tell them I will never leave them. Sometimes when Hamish wakes up enough, her sturdy tail starts propelling left to right, as she does, and it'll make a dark, booming noise against my wardrobe in the dark. They will then come sleep in my bed with me their little legs tucked under like the tiniest ponies would. Next bent, eyes softly closed, there we lie, three tired lumps. This is hard for me to let go. I feel such shame about the first part of this. Love in the moments where I feel good at work, but the shame really dominates apart from that. I also feel like a super brag, and if any of my colleagues ever listen to this survey, they'd rightfully think I am such a loser. I'm really conflicted about sending this, but I am letting it go. That was awesome. That was awesome. Got such a, such a, uh, you just painted such a picture of your inner and outer life, and, uh, I just really appreciate when you guys go deep like that. Well, I hope uh, I hope you like this episode. And uh, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just uh, never forget that uh, that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in know some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.